and welcome back to ZachCast, the official podcast for local government nerdery. I'm Chad. That's Patrick. How are you doing, sir? I'm good, man. How are you? Good. Hey, before we start, I read something today that uh, a couple of weeks ago we talked about like these random facts. <laughs> so I thought you might like this. I think it was like Wall Street Journal. I read it this morning. Okay. You have to follow me here because there's some like assumptions that you have to make to understand like how the math works. Okay. So the okay. Cir- circumference of the earth is about 25,000 miles. Okay. 25, so what we're going- Hold on. Let me, let me get my paper out. Sorry. Okay. 25,000 miles. So what we're going to assume is that you can actually circumnavigate the globe in a vehicle. Okay. So just for the sake of argument, you can drive all the way around the earth. Okay. Now, assuming- What do we call, what do we call that when all the continents are together? Pangea, but it didn't cover Pangea, the whole earth. Yeah. It was still just a small portion of it. But anyway. Okay. All right. Yeah, sorry. Okay. So you can drive all the way around the earth. Uh, assume that you're in like an F-150, something that gets like 15, 16 miles a gallon. Okay. Okay. Now, um, also assume no inflation over time and so assume that you're using an average uh, cost per gallon of you know, in America, it's like 380 right now in America. So mm-hmm. as you drive around different regions where gas might be more expensive, just assume that's all going to be the same price. Okay. And over time, okay. it will be the same price. Okay. So making those assumptions, driving 60 miles an hour continuously, you could drive for 690 years using only the money from Jimbo Fisher's buyout. <laughs> <laughs> that's what you have right there. <laughs> I look, I am still I I sent this in a text message and I know you took a screenshot of the text message, but I still believe in Jimbo. So I still believe that we will win. I'm an Aggie dude through and through. Like I'm not good for you. I was I was an Astros fan when we we're terrible. I I'm an Astros fan when we're great. Um that's that's why this area of Texas is such a great place to be a sports fan. You live and die by who you are. I'm a Rockets fan, I'm a Texans fan, Molly Bo. I will say I have become a little bit more in tune with the Cowboys. I'm not saying I'm a Cowboys fan, right? But they are kind of the team that's closest to my house, and my kids like to watch the Cowboys game. And, you know, so it's got Yeah, it can be hard to watch the Texans up here sometimes. <clears throat> yeah. Who'd y'all lose to this week? Uh, we beat uh, Detroit, the Mighty Lions, who are now one and five. Yeah. I was talking six, about the Cowboys. I was talking about that university that's in Austin. Oh, okay. So let's get right to it then. We hit this this topic uh, on the end of the last episode or maybe two episodes ago. I don't remember, Um, but it's an interesting topic of conversation because it kind of um, hits at a lot of things that we talk about, specifically uh, housing and zoning and parking and things like that, but also Mm -hmm. local control, right? One of the things Mm -hmm. that we advocate for a lot is local control. And what's going on in California right now which is just a series of uh, housing and parking reforms that are at the state level sort of restricting the ability of local governments to, um, you know, regulate how certain types of developments occur. So um, the specifics of these legislation uh, and these pieces of legislation isn't really all that important, but just so, you know, everyone's kind of uh, on the same page, there have been recently signed laws that, for example, allow you to build duplexes on lots that are zoned for one house or allow you to split your lot into two parcels, right? Basically by right. Um, they make it easier for cities to approve zoning changes for like apartment complexes of up to 10 units in neighborhoods where you have single family residential zoning. Um, 
various things like this, uh, ADU by right, uh, accessory dwelling units by right, things like things like that. Mm-hmm. And and in one case, um, if you have an ADU that's under 750 square feet, the city cannot require an impact fee on it, right? So um, some of the other things they've done have been to uh, basically get rid of parking minimums within like half mile of a major public transit stop. Um, that's a little bit different, I think, because uh, the idea behind those transit stops is obviously providing a viable public transit option. And uh, there's often a lot of state money that comes into that, federal money. And so if, you know, if you're going to have uh, this investment from the state, then they're probably going to want to have a little bit of say in the development that goes around it. So it's it's a little bit different. But my question to you is because I, I kind of struggle with this topic in particular, uh, in part because the outcomes I'm generally in favor of, um, but we do often talk about local control. And so um, what I would much prefer is that each city would on its own come to these conclusions, right? Uh, I think when you when you start to do too much from the top down, you can build up resentment, you can build up uh, antagonism versus when you're in a situation where you kind of make the case and convince people and have that groundswell, um, then I, I think you're in, at that point, a longer term positive outcome. Um, but it is possible to make these changes at the state level and then eventually have people kind of realize that, yeah, this was probably the best thing. So, and it is possible. We've seen that, I mean, in many, many cases uh, that are absolutely not relevant to to this topic. So um, I thought it might just be a good topic of conversation. What are your thoughts on on some of these changes and, and how they impact cities' ability to regulate housing and things like that? Well, let's first uh, focus on the local control piece because I, I think that's extremely important to to hit on. And and let's talk about why the local control piece has failed specifically when it comes to this, right? Um, you can go on the internet and download the game NIMBY. It's quite fun. Uh, it's basically like a SimCity emulator <laughs> that it's, allows you to build Sim a city like SimNIMBY, yeah. Um, that basically will allow you to build a city, but it 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 really doesn't allow you to do anything because the uh, the neighbor next door won't allow you to. Um, and and I think in local control, especially when it revolves around zoning, uh, we have really failed at the local government level. Uh, and we we talked about this all the way back in grad school. We talked about the public input process that cities had, and uh, you know you and I dealt with that for a long time where you would have maybe one or two or three people come into a city council meeting and they would share all share this opinion and they would be very impassioned about that opinion. And a lot of councils and even some staffs, uh, to be fair, but a lot of councils and staffs look at that and say, well, that must be the opinion of the entire community. These three people must be the opinion of the entire community. Um, and, and clearly by the popularity of what California has done, that's not necessarily the case when you look at it from a statewide standpoint. Um, but that nimbyism and the ability to, or lack of ability to implement decent zoning laws that allow for uh, investments to be improved within those neighborhoods, it it's really caused this friction at the local level where you can't do the things you want to do with your property, almost, almost to the point of like violating a property, right? Not when it negatively impacts somebody else's property, but uh, because the, the reality is, 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 is what you're seeing in these California neighborhoods uh, with these dwelling units, these additional dwelling units that are going in is 
you know, the, the property values of the surrounding community are going up. So they're not actually having a negative impact, but people claim there's a negative impact. And that's not really what the data shows, but because there's three people in that city council room, the city council couldn't adopt those codes by themselves because they had this false narrative of it's not good for my local community. I don't like the direct legislative zoning that is done at the state level. Um, you know, I would like there to be a better check and balance. And and I've really thought about this. So I, I think one of the reasons we listened to this like two weeks ago and took some time is because you and I both kind of needed time to really think this through on how we felt. I would have like, think of it from like my kids at a bowling alley. I would have rather had bumpers. Like I, I think it would have been better for the state to kind of lay out bumpers um, and give communities a choice in how to do this. Right. I don't think in all communities, 750 square foot is a good number for not requiring specific types of approval, right? I think every city should have the option of doing an SUP at a certain level and not doing an SUP at a certain level. Um, well, that was just know, an impact fee. But. Yeah, but I mean, you, you get what I'm saying. Like, whether you're going to develop this thing as like an allowed right, or you're going to develop this through some type of SUP process, or you know, looking at adjacent uh, property, looking at the impact of the adjacent property, those type of things. Like, it would have been nice. Almost like we have in Texas. So in Texas, you have two different aspects of entitlements. You have zoning, right? And then you have subdivision. And and we always say that subdivision is a magistrate authority of a city, right? As long as you meet these checklist guidelines that are kind of laid out in state statute, but are also kind of also put into some local language that are more directly related to those cities, right? Drainage may be a little different in North Texas than it is in Houston for sure, right? So they're going to have different subdivision requirements when it comes to drainage. I would have liked it to be laid out that way. The general rule of thumb in subdividing property in Texas is, is you have the legal right to subdivide your property. That's the general rule of thumb. The city has the right to kind of put you within guardrails to make sure that you're subdividing it correctly, providing proper access, drainage, roads, you know, access for water and sewer, so forth and so on. So I think that would have been a better path for California than almost the direct legislative zoning path that they took. So I think that's a, a valid point. I'm I'm hesitant to use the property values, whether they go up or down, as an argument in this case. Um, I think that we do. I mean, one of the biggest arguments against any kind of redevelopment or new development is that it's going to affect my property values negatively. And I think that conceding the it concedes the argument to say, well, actually, it makes them go up. Um, and and I don't really find that to be the most effective or uh, cogent argument either for or against additional development or uh, you know upzoning or anything like that. Um, I think that the more that we can sort of tie or untie untether a home that we bought from being our biggest investment that we have. It's probably better for our local politics um, in the long run, because you do have, uh, I mean, talk about the three people that come to a meeting. The reason that they're there is because they vehemently oppose something. The other 50 mm -hmm. or 80 or however many people who don't really care that much, they're not going to invest the time to go to a meeting, right? But when your home is your most valuable and your, uh, your most important financial instrument, it puts a lot of uh, both emotion and just sort of visceral uh, opinions on what other people do with their properties. Because if it does 
negatively impact, you know, your, your property values, well then how much of your net worth are you losing? How much of like, it's basically become like a forced savings mechanism. And, and now all of a sudden I was planning on, on retiring here or using this uh, in some way when I get, you know, to an advanced stage and this is going to limit my ability to do that. I think if we can untangle home ownership with this is my most important investment that I have in my whole life, then that would help us uh, alleviate some of the, the tensions that we have in the housing uh, realm. Yeah. So, so I mean, I, I don't, I don't disagree with you on we should disconnect the property values from from people's uh, like investment side, right? Like that's that's their biggest. Uh, you know, it's the biggest generator of American wealth is is homes. Like I understand that that's probably not all that healthy when it comes to zoning conversations and and things like that. Because well, it, it's it, not it, healthy when it comes to long term economic development. Because if if the primary way that your home is going to increase in value is by not building any more homes, then what are we supposed to do <laughs> moving forward? Right? Because now all of a sudden we're at a point where we have such a huge backlog of homes right, so we that gotta, we need. And so now you're talking about massive uh, so development. That, That's correct. But we have to dig into that a little bit, right? Because uh, also on that same podcast, they talk about the other reasons, you know, that California was was having this inability to build homes, right? There was a big environmental push uh, when, when growth happened in the 50s and 60s and Sierra Club got involved. And so there was a lot of legislation passed that gave local authorities a lot of authority to kind of slop, stop or slow development because they were losing a bunch of redwood forest and and so forth and so on. But we, we've got to mention that piece because I think it's hard to do. I, I don't disagree with you that it has now become a vehicle for people to make their properties worth more for the simple fact of a supply and demand issue. If there's nothing else coming on the market, therefore my existing property will be worth more and it will advance that wealth through this property. And I I, I agree that that's probably irresponsible from a long-term um, investment like strategy for the city, right? Or for the community. Especially when you throw uh, Prop 13 into it, right? Because you can't, you're not getting any of the increase in the value of that home as a governmental authority, right? Like that house right, was so bought for $400,000. It's taxed at $400,000, even though it's worth 1.6 million. Yeah. So Prop right. 13, the, the, the referendum that created California's property tax system, which, which is much, much more restrictive in terms of the value growth than, than we have here in Texas. Yeah. So in all the Texas city managers are like, man, California's crazy. <laughs> and it is like, Everything about their property taxation system is is really goofy, uh, and it's it's like really anti free market when you when you look at it that way too. But I I I look at what California has done, and you can see the detrimental impacts to that. I don't think it was just one thing though. Like I don't think it was just the NIMBYism that hit it. It was also the environmental movement. It was also the investment and development movement. It was. You know, there are a lot of developers out there that love very restrictive communities because they can work within those restrictive communities. They understand it, and it it kind of clears the path for a number of larger players that have the ability to go through the complexity. It makes it right? much harder for small development. Makes it much harder for smaller development. So, in in the world of like California, you know, you you have a lot of your 
density developers and things like that that were doing quite well. And then on the other side of the argument, you have more of your track home developers like your DR Hortons and so forth and so on that we're on the the other side of this is we've got to loosen this up because we've got to make this availability for the workforce and so forth and so on. And I think ultimately what happened at the state level is they started asking themselves the question. And we, some of this comes out in the podcast, uh, not, not really, uh, but a little bit of it. They started asking themselves the question, right? Why are people leaving California? And it's a beautiful state. Yes, it's a high taxation state, but it's a very pretty state, right? Why are people leaving? And the main reason is they can't, they can't afford a home generationally, they can't get into a house. And so that's why they're leaving the state. They grow up there. They go to school there. A lot of times they go to college there. And then when they graduate college, they figure out, I'm not going to own a home for 30 years. Um, and, and so, or I can just move to Texas and I can be 26 years old in a job and I can own a home the minute I get on the ground in Texas. Right. Um, so I, I think that's a little difficult. The other side of that is the investment piece the federal level, I mean, getting past local, state, and everything else, but the federal level has really encouraged people to use their homes as a piggy bank. If you look at every federal policy on home lending, right, it, it's basically like we're going to grow the middle class through home ownership. I mean, you, you've heard president after president after president say that. Um, and and they do. They use FHA and they use the lending programs and they use the bond buying programs the tax and so code. forth and so on. And the tax code to encourage home ownership, um, and so you know I think we're going to continue to see that as a wealth generator, not because that's what people want it to be. We're going to continue to see that because the government has pushed us into that policy decision. Yeah. So this is the one area where I uh, am a little bit more confident in my opinion on this, and that's that when you when you do start getting into um, mandated behaviors, right? Whether it's with the in the federal tax code or whether it's the state of California saying that you can and can't do that, you have to allow this, you can't allow that. One of the areas that frustrates me the most about some of these laws is that they have certain carve-outs or certain requirements for uh, whether it's prevailing wages or different kind of benefits or, or you know union carve-outs for some of these things, which really kind of negates the ability to actually implement some of these in some ways, right? Because like if you're trying to, or, or at the very least, it makes it more difficult for smaller developers to be involved. And mm-hmm. so when then you start talking about the big players again, and and then everything becomes a really big development. And what we really need is for a bunch of small developments. We need a bunch of uh, of small iterative changes over time. And so I think a framework that's crafted more towards that would would be better long term as well. This is a little off topic, but I'm just going to give an example, like a quick example of how those carve-outs have a very legitimate policy um, decision that's made and and kind of changes the behavior of Americans. So the Infrastructure Act that just passed that included all of the EV tax credit information that went in there, right? So vehicle tax credit. read a really good article on this last week, but um, so that tax credit requires that a certain percentage of those EV vehicles be built in the United States. And that's a $7,500 tax credit. It's real easy to do now. It's a lot easier than it is to get that done than it is the old tax credit. Um, they they did that, but they did that for personal sales. On the business sales side, there is a light duty tax credit of $7,500 that does not have the same rules. And then there is a heavy duty tax credit of up to $40,000 that also does not have the same rules or guidelines. So they're encouraging businesses to buy vehicles 
right? That don't meet these in bulk that don't meet these same American build guidelines. And then consumers on the other end are are done. So what is that? What is that going to do from a consumer standpoint? Well, I can tell you right now for me, a guy who owns a couple of companies with you, if I'm going to go buy a car and it's an EV and it doesn't meet the standard, (laughs) my company's going to buy the car. Right. I mean, it's and, and the article actually says this, right? It lays it out there that every small business in the world is going to buy this car through their company tax write-off and instead of, you know, through the personal side. So it's just an unintended consequences of the policy because they they wrote specific at a high level of government, they wrote a very specific policy guideline instead of providing guardrails on this is what we this is the policy accomplishment that we want to happen. Now you go do it at a local level and implement. Yeah. Which, I think when you're talking about anything uh, of this nature, I think the most important thing that policymakers can keep in mind, this applies to local governments too. When you're trying to write rules for complex systems, you need to write simple rules, right? Mm-hmm. You can't account for all of the edge cases. You can't try to uh, manipulate things into being. You just need to write simple guardrail rules and then let the system kind of evolve over time. You have to find the why. Why I, I say this, everything we do, right? Everything that I, I mean, even when I'm coaching youth sports, if you tell a kid, go do this, and they don't understand the why of, of why they're doing that, then they're not going to do it as successfully as they did it if it's the why. So when you're dealing with something that's super complicated from a policy perspective, if you'll just say, this is why we want to do this. This is what we want to accomplish, right? Then you know exactly what those, you know, details and edge cases and things like that, like where they should be tilted to, right? But instead we try to, you know, go and and build these really complex systems with crazy strict guidelines that make it almost, you know, entirely too difficult to develop i.e the california development system when it comes to residential development yeah and often it makes the opposite of what you want happen occur um yeah we want to save the environment so we're going to build sprawl (laughs) and we're going to sprawl like how does that how does that make any sense it's just it's we're going to take all this farmland and we're going to build single family homes on it instead of allowing a little bit more density all the sierra club wanted Right, is they wanted to make sure that land was not uh, negatively impacted, destroyed, or contaminated. That was what they wanted to do. The law that they got passed, I think it was in like the late '60s, early '70s, but the law they got passed in California basically made it so hard to get an environmental document through the process that it took two and a half years to get an environmental document done. Whereas in Texas, you can buy property, plat it, subdivide it, build a road, put a subdivision in, get all that done in a year. So of course, housing is going to be cheaper here because you can handle demand better. You can turn that pipeline on, turn that pipeline off very quickly. And in California, you can't. So um, you know, maybe these new guidelines work. It's, it's important to say that this is very focused on their kind of test uh, ballooning here, right? With this additional dwelling unit. Um, and we'll see kind of how that goes, but what's, what's happening is, is that the development community is going in there, buying these single family households, subdividing the single family household under this ADU statute, and then also adding another, 
uh, ADU unit on the property. So they're taking a single family household and they're turning it into a three family household, right? Um, and so that it's very interesting how this is 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 going through the process, and we'll see where it is. the The reaction within the community is is mixed, but yeah, we'll see where that goes. Yeah. All right. Next topic. Okay. Real quick, just to wrap up on this one because it's kind of we'll kind of go into the next one as a result. But for me, when I'm trying to figure out, uh, and this is kind of where I am in terms of my opinion on this, I, I would rather it be a local initiative. Um, but when you're talking about the legal framework that cities operate in and where does local control um, come into that. I'm trying to think of this in um, like some kind of statutory change that limits a city's ability to actually operate and function versus one that sort of limits their scope of authority. I don't know if that's really a reasonable uh, like barrier to draw from a local control standpoint, but I look at like property tax reform as a, a mechanism that is impacting cities and local government's ability to just function at all versus say the um the recent annexation laws from a couple of sessions ago sort of limit the scope of uh what cities are able to do now i know a lot of cities especially didn't like those those new annexation rules mm -hmm. but even just tying it back to these these california housing rules it's not so much that they're um, limiting the city's ability to function. They're just saying you actually can't really regulate this part anymore um, because zoning is essentially offered to you as a something that you can do by the state. So you can do all of these things, but you can no longer do this one thing. And that's kind of where I'm struggling a little bit on on how I feel about uh, about it. I don't know if that's a good heuristic to use or if it's consistent um, at all, but... It's kind of I mean, it's a very complicated. It's a very complicated topic, and it's it 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 really it has so many different details that could work in different manners and forms. So, um, I would love to actually, and we should in a future topic. Now that we've had that annexation reform bill, I would love to get a couple city managers on to specifically talk about what impact has it had on our communities. Because I mean, I can tell you just real quick, the impact has been for folks that that we've come across. Cities have changed their mindset, right? They're not building water pipelines to eventually go two miles outside their city anymore, right? That's that's been one of the big changes. So water capacity may not be as available in ETJ, um, and the state's trying to adjust to that now, right? The state's trying to go in there and be like, well, if it's in your CCN, you have a legal obligation. There's just a, there's a lot of push pull there, right? Um, but at the same time, cities still have a level of control on what happens in the ETJ because they need utilities and they need some other things. So there's been a better um, communication between developer and city because cities have to work with them and developers have to work with cities. So it's, it's kind of brought both parties to the table. Um, I'd be interested to kind of get uh, two different aspects of that conversation yeah. on. So um, well, and, and here that, that one. But yeah, put a pin in that one. Move on to the next item. If you have a, an opinion on that topic, please reach out to us and we might have you on the show. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. So the next topic, somewhat related to this concept of local control, of subsidiarity, of where decisions are made. Um, a few weeks ago on the Strong Towns podcast, uh, the Strong Towns founder, Chuck Barone, talked about a very specific situation that he ran into in his hometown of Brainerd, Minnesota. One of his neighbors, they are not on the friendliest of terms, I guess you might say. Uh, it's not that they're necessarily uh, dislike each other. It's just there's a little bit of antagonism. Well, at some point, 
the neighbor uh, applies for a fence permit is going to either replace or put up a new fence or something in, in between their lot lines. One day he's just out there building, building a fence on what Chuck Marone believes to be his property line. And so what turns out to have happened is that when the neighbor went to go get his fence permit, the staff in the, the permitting office pulled up their little Google Maps with their parcel lines and they said, okay, here's where your property line is. You can build that fence right there. And so that's what the neighbor did. Whereas typically these things are done uh, by saying, okay, well, you and your neighbor agree on where the property line is, right? And just mm-hmm. you all work out what that question is. And, uh, and then you can go from there. Um, and the point of this story uh, was that he felt like the city was approaching this, A, from a slight bit of incompetence, but B, from a, like a retail customer service mindset where you know the customer's right, we're going to go out of our way to help you and get you the answer that you need. And that means we're going to pull this map up and tell you to, to go do it, as opposed to uh, seeing their role as sort of almost, almost like a mediator in that circumstance, right? Like they're not going to be the ones to make this decision. What the decision actually needs to happen uh, or where it needs to be made is with the neighbors and like in that particular very local setting. Um, and so he, he kind of raised that as a topic of, of customer service and how, to, how should cities view customer service? Is the retail customer service mindset um, the right one? Or should we be more looking to, to push certain decisions down as low as they can go? Um, so anyway, I know that you had some concern. We talked a little bit about it uh, on the mm-hmm. previous podcast, but why don't you go ahead and, and throw out your opinions to get us started? I, I think it's important to understand it. Ch- Chuck explains one instance where um, his neighbor at like two o'clock in the morning starts a fire in their backyard. Like they start a bonfire in their backyard and it, you know, this, this is uh, Minnesota, right? And, and so it's, you know, it's a summer evening in Minnesota. There's no air conditioning in a lot of these areas. And so people leave their windows open. Like that's how they get cool air in the house. Um, and he explains that they start the fire and it's right outside of his master bedroom window. And that it just starts put billowing smoke into his house. Right. I just tell you in Texas, I don't think that would have been near as friendly as it was in Minnesota. (laughs) (laughs) Minnesota nice. Yeah, Minnesota nice for sure. Uh, and so, you know, he kind of talks about like they really hadn't met the neighbors yet. And so they they tried to meet them and it just, you know, things didn't go well. Um, I think for me, the failure in this entire process of what happened and, and yeah, you know, it was all over the fence, right? Where the fence was going to be placed, what the permit was from the staff. The staff actually showed the homeowner where the fence was supposed to go. That fence happened to be three to four feet on the Chuck's property. And I, I think what this ultimately shows and I, where I really agree with Chuck in, in his conversation is the city staff actually got in the way of neighbors talking to neighbors. And I think the city staff should be more like facilitators. And uh, Chuck makes the comment that we should have less engineers, right? And... Uh, I can't remember if he gave another occupation, but I do remember him talking about engineers, but we should have less engineers and more social workers in city government. I would actually say we just need more logical, business-friendly, like-minded people. See, and he talks about, well, the customer always being right and the retail aspect of city government is is where that failure 
came in. And I would say, I don't really think it's that. I, I think it's that you've, you've hired people who are very right angled, very black and white, and then ask those individuals to also not make somebody mad. So in order to make somebody not mad, they make compromises in process that they don't see as a problem. And that compromise in process is what got in trouble in, in this instance. And I think what we need to do is we need to have city staff members at a local level when the local level needs to get involved is when it has an impact on two or more properties. And when it has an impact on two or more properties, we should work towards a resolution that is fair for all property owners. Not a resolution that everybody agrees on. I think that's extremely important, but a resolution that everybody is there. So for example, we always, in the previous city that we worked in, it was very common to build uh, what we called mother-in-law quarters. And there was a specific use. As it were. An ADU. Yes. And we had a specific use permit process to go through that. And we would stipulate in that permit process that you would not get staff recommendation for approval if you did not have a conversation with your neighbors and get a letter from those neighbors stating that they were okay with what you were doing. Not a verbal, not a my neighbors are just in favor of it or a phone call. We wanted something in writing. Like you could put together a petition with the attached drawings, however you wanted to do that. But we wanted that to come in so that we could see that you had taken the time to go knock on the door and talk to your neighbors, to let them know what was going to happen. And we also said, but hey, if you have a neighbor who doesn't agree with this, right, then we will reach out to that neighbor and figure out why they don't agree to it so that we can try to come to some solution. Instead of neighbor going after neighbor about that, we, I would pick up the phone normally in this case, and I would call that other neighbor and I'd say, hey, you know, they want to build this. What's your problems? Blah, 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 blah. And I would also be the carrot and the stick. Okay. I understand that concern. I think, I think we can work with the resident to try to get something there. I was a mediator in the middle of the process. I was not a dictator. I was the mediator. Well, you understand they do have the legal right to build this. I mean, ultimately, this is something that we allow all the time. I actually used to use the line, I think we had three city council members that had these already. So you're asking a city council to deny something they already have, right? Um, but I would I would stipulate that we want to work with you and we want to do this, but there is a line of what you're going to get. Like, don't ask for things that are just outrageous here. And they have the right to do this. I think Chuck's, where Chuck is really has a great point is that the city staff didn't do that. They didn't try to take it to the neighbor to neighbor level to go get something done. Where I disagree with Chuck is, is Chuck feels like that neighbor should come over, should get an agreement. And if that neighbor doesn't agree, they should have to go spend thousands and thousands of dollars on survey. Like the person who wants to put the fence up should go spend thousands of dollars on a survey to get that done. I think a city should step in before that happens. I think a city should step in and say, okay, is there a reasonable need to do that? Are we are we arguing over six inches, two feet? What are, what are we actually arguing over? And is there something that we can do to help with that? Because you guys are both taxpaying citizens to assist with that process. Uh, that's where I get more retail than Chuck is, right? Where he's like, no, it needs to go to the the homeowner and the homeowner's got to do that. I actually think the city should have some retail involvement in that process. That's fundamentally a different skill for a planner than what we Very. typically, right? So, so I think that's where he gets yep. into like hiring social workers, essentially, 
um, is that it is a, it is a much different skill set than someone whose primary nine to five is looking at plans and saying, well, it here's seven different parts of the subdivision ordinance of the zoning code that this doesn't agree with. And so go fix that, right? Like just sort of by the book kind of job versus trying to find some way to get middle ground. And, and really going back to what you said earlier, understanding the why, like, why do we do this, right? Why does staff not recommend something without all of the neighbors? Not, why does staff not recommend this ADU unless all the neighbors have signed off on it? Because there's a process that needs to take place to make sure that everyone can live with what's about to, to be built, right? Doesn't Correct. mean that he can't do it or she or whoever. Doesn't mean that the property owner can't build this, but we need to try to resolve some of these things before it gets too far down the road and then have much bigger issues to deal with in the future. And not only that, resolve it before neighbors are going after neighbors in front of board meetings. Like th these things blow up out of control. Mm hmm over like a garage that gets put in, right? I mean, it 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 can get you start getting lively. code enforcement calls about high grass and things like that. Yeah, I mean, it, it it at the end of the day, if the city doesn't put the extra into it, it's going to cost them more in the long run, right? So we we can do more there. I used to always love. Um, so in, in most city zoning codes, there are landscape requirements. So there's a requirement that you put in, and I know we you and I both don't love parking requirements. Uh, but most cities have a parking requirement, right? You have to have so many parking stalls per thousand foot of retail or whatever that may be. And in most cities, they have a landscape ordinance. And it was always intriguing to me how they interpreted the landscaping of a parking lot, right? So in, in the two different ways that were done, the first way is you have to have 200 parking spaces, right? And in most cities, you have to landscape 10% of your parking lot. What does that mean you have to have 10% landscaping plus the 200 spaces, right? Or does that mean your square is the 200 spaces and you take away 20 spaces for the landscaping? The interpretation of that ordinance and how it was interpreted by staff members along my path in city management was always a telltale sign for how they would react in the situation in Chuck's world on that fence situation, right? Because the person who interprets that as there are 200 spaces and you need 10% landscaping is not looking at the overall why of that policy, right? The why of that policy is just to break up the parking lot. Are those 20 spaces or the reduction of those 20 spaces going to have any negative impact on the retail? No, right? They'll actually have a positive impact on the city's ability to generate revenue because they'll increase the leasable amount of space on the building. Because well, not if you're just replacing it with landscaping. Well, no, because you can get more parking in with the landscaping expansion, plus you get more retail. So in the long run, you can actually, if you interpret that one way, you can actually put more square footage in retail, which yes, does increase your parking requirements, but you're also reducing that parking requirement by the 10% of landscape. So there's a lot of different ways to interpret that, but the way that that, if it's really interpreted as a right angle, of it's 200 plus the 10, then I always looked at that and said, well, you're not really thinking through the, 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 the squishy feely part of the policy, why we're doing what we're doing. And it, it's always written in every city. It's written in a, in a form that's not real clear on which way it's supposed to be interpreted. And every city interprets it different. So every time you got a call from a landscape architect, right, they always ask that question. Do you interpret it this way or do you interpret it this way? It was always fascinating to me. How do you interpret it? 
Um, I mean, I, I guess it would depend on how it's actually written. My guess is that most of them are written where the default interpretation would be, you know, 200 spaces is require are required, and 10% mm -hmm. of your parking must be landscaped. So if that means that you need an extra, say, you know, 5,000 square feet for your parking lot, or whatever the case may be, then that's what it means. And so then you would have yeah. less space for uh, anything else, whether it's building or any other surface use. Which is my, why the my, cities, the cities that I had influence in that I was in when it came to zoning, it's it's why their ordinances now say that that ten percent of landscape can be used back towards a credit of the parking lot because I didn't want that interpretation ever <laughs> to increase the size of the parking lot. I wanted to decrease the size and just break up the heat island effect. That's what we ultimately were after. Some nice, beautiful trees. That way, when you're walking, you know, like six miles from the one side of the parking lot to the store, you'll have like mm -hmm. just small little pockets of shade that can can shield you from the uh, cancerous rays of our sun. I mean, right before <laughs> you're about right before you're about to pass the 38 foot wide strode before you walk into a grocery store, you, you can know, sit I've always thought that tree. that Parking at, especially at big box uh, retail or power centers, I think it's due for a, like a redesign or like a like rethinking oh, yeah. of how it works. Having the drive strip right by the front of the store seems like probably the worst option that we could choose. I would, uh, I would a hundred percent agree. Um, I mean, you you got back from Europe not too long ago, and I, I got to give Europe some credit here where there are some car-centric developments, right? I feel like Europe does parking much better than we do, right? Uh, and in a significantly safer manner than we do in a lot of areas. But no, I agree. Like, why does that main thoroughfare have to be directly in front of the store? And the answer to the question is fire code, by the way. That's why. Yeah, they have to be able to get up there to the... The front entrance, they also have to be able to park so they can go inside and get their cheese its and their uh we're gonna dads. we're gonna have to we're gonna have to cut that from we have firefighters that listen to our podcast, they're gonna be very offended by That's that. Okay. Chat. There's a thing called Instacart. You don't have to drive your million yeah. and a half dollar fire truck to the gas the grocery store. They run about 1.8 million these days, but yes, I feel your pain. We ran that fun analysis one time on how often the fire truck left the, the firehouse and how much it costs to go grocery shopping. Yeah, like, every time I see it, I take a picture of it and send it to you and Doug. Yeah. So, <laughs> but they have, they have, you know, they got A shift, B shift. You know, they're working 4896s in a lot of departments now. So they have to go shopping less. Yeah. 48 so, you know, on. They used to work 48 on. So instead of 24, Interesting. Right, they go 48 on, 96 off. So a so lot of your can, smaller they can departments buy food for two days. Right? Interesting. So they can buy food for two days, which, reduces the overall amount of trips to the grocery store and cuts it in half because they would take basically yes you could seven also just you buy food for more than one day you could buy well, why can't you just buy food to have food in the firehouse i i get it but most fire shifts are from like six to six or seven to seven right so you would almost always see a fire truck in a grocery store or walmart parking lot at like 7 15 or 7 30 in the morning mm -hmm. right because the shift get just to started. So go, to, go to Walmart. They're, they're going to go get their food for the next 24 hours for the shift. And everybody throws money in and splits that pot on the food and the meals. So it's just a, it's just be a like super the Google efficient of fire use. Yeah, it's a very you efficient. You could just be like the Google of fire departments, though, and have like R Mark come in and feed all your firefighters on shift. Make that a, 
a perk of the job. Like a like a chef that just goes by all your stations. They'd have to eat at different times though. Yeah. But you know, like one of the big things I did in on the management side, I hated employees paying for drinks. Like I thought that was the craziest thing in the world. And so, you know, I always had, you know, the Kruig machine and I always had, you know, drinks, Topo Chico's and Cokes and so No, sodas we never bought Topo Chico's, but we always had Coke and sodas. Yeah. So we did towards the end. You may not have been there then. I bought but we them. did buy you bought them personally and then I bought them, them for myself, yeah. Okay. So we had a very millennial workforce there. A lot of Topo Chico drinkers. Anyways, so are, are we lost on this Chuck uh, Chuck topic or will we wrap that one up? I think we're good. It's, it's okay. a complicated subject just like the others. I think that uh, we do need to have sensibility for why certain decisions are made. I, I don't think that the retail customer service approach of trying to be helpful and going the extra mile is necessarily a bad thing. I think you have to, you have to pair it with an understanding of why you're doing what you're doing. Um, I mean, I, I would, if I had two options and maybe it's just an, uh, a matter of disagreeing with his definition of what retail customer service would look like, but I, I would rather have an employee who does try to help, right? Like whose default position is no on everything, but like, I'm going to not just give you a terse answer, but either try to explain it or, uh, go out of my way to try to help resolve whatever problem you're having. I would mm -hmm. take that over the opposite. But you can get into trouble if they don't understand why they're doing what they're doing. Yep. Because then they can go too far and get the city in trouble, like that particular instance that he, that he mentioned. So like everything's yeah, so a balancing act. I, and 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 the you know, and what he mentioned is it should have never happened, right? Like they they use a mapping software system, like a GIS mapping software system to determine where the fence line should have been. And it literally gives you a disclaimer when you open up your GIS software on any city website. Don't use this. Don't use, yeah, don't this use reference this for only. this purpose, right? It's for reference only. So, um, I mean, they, they did everything wrong and Chuck kind of wraps up with that. You know, the city knows they did it wrong. He really feels bad for his neighbor because his neighbor's now having to remove this investment that he put in and move it over. And it's just, it's made matters worse. And I, I get all of that. I want to jump back to the California topic real quick because I think one of the things we skimmed over and we missed in that when we talk about where things should be done legislatively. Okay. What is surprising in California is is that this new housing policy is is coming from like a I'd say a little bit more like of a, of a free market approach, but it's coming from the left, right? California is democratically controlled through and through. Right. These are Democratic lawmakers pushing for this legislation to make it easier to live in California. Like that's that's their overall goal is to try to find a place for people to multiple family generations to live together, so forth and so on. That's what they're they're going after. I would find that to be something typically you would see more conservative states doing, basically telling their cities that they can't get in the way of the free market. Um, and I think it's an important conversation to have in Texas. Because I do think there was legislation passed in Texas that's like a warning shot to cities. And, and that legislation specifically is the building materials legislation that was passed two sessions ago, where cities were basically told they can no longer regulate building materials to be used in, in construction uh, as long as that building material is approved within the code that the city has adopted, right? So um, – Specifically, if you know stucco is an approved substance, they they can use stucco. If they can use siding, they can you know whatever it may be, hardy, so forth and so on. 
I bring that up because if you talk to state legislators about that, I don't agree with this. I want to be very clear. But if you talk to them, they'll say, well, cities were just getting ridiculous and they were specifying that you know, plumbers had to use this specific plumbing valve and this specific shower head. Uh, and it ended up being <laughs> I'm like sure that was happening who owned, yeah. you know, stuff like that. And then like on the brick side, they had to use a specific old town Acme brick, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, okay, but was that in cross the entire city or was that like in a downtown old town, downtown area where they wanted to match the brick or in like the beautiful city of, of Granbury where everything has Granbury white stone. Like it, it is their signature stone. I say all of that and tell people that I don't necessarily agree with it to say, if we don't get a handle on our zoning side, on just the hysteria and, and everything else that comes out of the zoning processes and local governments, it's going to be a lot easier to pass that in Texas than it would be to pass it in California. No, you know what's going to happen in Texas? Some cities are going to start upzoning their single family residential and you're going to get a, a state law that says you cannot do that. Oh, you think it's the opposite? Yes. Okay. Wow. Yeah, that's what I think. So will you happen. think like Austin? I mean, because that that would be so like Austin has a mm-hmm. you know huge housing shortage, right? You think like Austin goes there to single family residential neighborhoods and says, okay, you can now make these. You can now buy right, make them duplexes, something like that. Yeah. Okay. Um, I don't know if Austin would be the test case that would, uh, like the shot over the bow that would cause the reaction. Uh huh. It's possible just because everything is so antagonistic with Austin anyway, but um. But yeah, that's that's my guess. And it's not so much because it, it wouldn't be something that you would expect a conservative Republican party to do, right? Free markets. Um, but but things in local government don't tie to those labels, right? So what we would end up having True. is more of a culture war reaction uh, versus any kind of free market, limited government conversation. It would be, so well, those- we get a- those democratic mayors are doing this and we're going to stop them. Like you're not going to end our single family residential homes. Um, and so we're going to prevent you from, from upzoning. Not, not that, uh, not that this information, not that this topic wouldn't make really interesting bedfellows. Isn't there a really easy way for cities to get ahead of that conversation? Like we all know this is where things are going to go, right? Well, just do it now. <laughs> just no, not, not necessarily do it, not necessarily do it now, but is there not like an area where like APA Texas and TCMA and GFOAT could put together some committees where they have a bunch of people on it and then also bring in like the development associations and the builders associations and have those conversations and and really have that be like a more of like a commission push from everybody, like both sides of the equation at the table. Like I mean, let's, Let's get ahead of this to legislate it instead of get getting a reactionary legislative mm-hmm. process. It's theoretically possible, but it seems like the legislative leaders tend not to have any interest in what cities would have to tell them. But we're seeing now, maybe it. Maybe if you get yeah. other parties involved, that would help. But but we're seeing we're seeing it now in Texas that the you know the four rent communities that are being built, like the single family four rent communities that are being built, we're seeing in older areas a real push pull on additional dwelling units on the properties. You you see it in, in some larger cities as well. It just seems like, I mean, I, 
I would make the prediction. I, I'm not sure what your prediction would be, but I would make the prediction that Texas is not going to be far behind California in the need for housing. Like we're, I think we're already there. We're not as bad, we, but we definitely need bad, more housing. But we already see the fact that we're going to need these additional upzoning measures in Texas. Not and, necessarily, and man. If you have if you have enough land, I mean, think about how much land there is within the triangle: Dallas, Fort Worth, Houston. Austin. But if you're using our decision, if you're using our decision engine, you're not you're not you're not developing that land, right? You're not doing this right. But <laughs> correct. When that's the default position and there's so much vacant land that is reasonably inexpensive, you're going to keep getting the same type of development and they're going to be large developments as opposed to, you know, iterative incremental increases in, in the amount of people we can house. But no, I mean, I, I just don't see, I don't see a massive shift in the next 10, 15 years. That's any, anything online with what California is doing right now. Okay. Interesting. I mean, look, look at the housing prices in California. It's ridiculous. Oh, it's 800 crazy. square foot it's houses crazy. for $2 million. There, there's no place in Texas. There are places in Texas that are approaching that, um, but not, not, at, an not an a square foot house. Yeah. yeah. And, and not at an 800 square foot house. That's bungalows selling for that. Yeah. You know, bungalows that were basically like Sears kit homes. I mean, think right. about that. These people right. ordered the these 50s. homes in Sears yeah. catalogs and the built 50s. in themselves. Built them, yeah, built them themselves or had subs that would do parts of it, but basically built these houses themselves. And then bam, they're sitting on two million dollars now. It's it's yeah, it's madness for sure. Um, but okay, I, I think I think your point out of all of that last five minutes of conversation, I really agree with you. It was a really well-made point that Texas is not gonna go the same way as California, they'll go the opposite direction. But that's not conservatism, that's populism. Of course, it's, but think about all the things that we have here. It's not, it's not conservatism. Yeah. Wow. My mind is blown. Wow. But I think there are ways to get ahead of that. I really do. The problem we have in local government is we just go do, and then we hope they don't find out. Like, mom and dad, please don't Well, find that's out. the whole point of the home rule, right? Is you can do what you want until they say you can't. Correct. So. But, but we take it to the, we take it to the, like the, the infinite level of can't, right? Yeah. Like the stove is hot and we put our hand on it. <laughs> it would so. be nice if we had a better relationship with the state. Um, I think the biggest problem with the state right now is that because of the demographic shifting, the impact of rural voters and interests is shrinking. And in order to maintain current power dynamics, districts are being redrawn such that those rural interests can still have a seat at the table. If you look at, uh, well, I won't get to that, but the problem is if that we don't come to some kind of like compromise or middle ground or at least understanding, then I, I don't think it's going to be a, a pleasant time. I think it's going to be really, really frustrating for a while. Well, if you look at the polling for the last week, it ain't, it ain't going to be in this midterm election. Yeah. I can <laughs> it tell you that. It won't be next <laughs> month. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and look, I'm, I'm not saying that uh, it's going to always be that way, but when you turn on MSNBC and they tell you that the Democrats are losing by 10 points, they must really be losing by 10 points, right? Like the polling numbers out there, the approval ratings for the president are bad. It's just a weird political time. The The president's approval ratings are really dismal. Uh, but also like the, at the approval rating of Donald Trump is really bad, right? Like it's, it's, it's not like he, was never much over 40. Was it? 
but it's below 40 now. It's like 36 or 37. And 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 Biden, I think, is like 38. Well, that's President shaping up for a fantastic presidential election then. It, I mean, it's it's gonna be a, <laughs> here's two old guys that no one likes. <laughs> Vote for one correct. of them. Correct. <laughs> it's it's gonna it's gonna be it's gonna be wild. And you know, as when we talk about city stuff, we really look at it from more of like an apolitical standpoint. We look at it from local control. That's like the first lens that we look at. Um and so but it it just has the making of when cities what was it 2008 2009 when we went through like the tea party movement and there was just yeah, a 2010. really big there was like a really big shift and change in the political environment at the local level it just feels like something's bubbling there it feels like it's ripe for you know some of these candidates to find these single issues and um you know, I feel like they're really pushing that in the school district side, like books and libraries and and you know things like that. Like you can that that school like the the attack on books and libraries and school boards and so forth and so on feels very reminiscent to the Tea Party movement that we saw in city government. You and I were both in high level positions in cities when that happened, and um, you know saw some really good council members who got tossed. Um, yep. And so um, it just it feels like something simmering there because there's just the dislike numbers are so high. So it's like when somebody feels like they find that topic, that flag to put in the ground, everybody's going to go around that flag. It, it, I don't know my, my two cents. And Oh, by the way, the economy's not all that great. <laughs> yeah. So that might be the next thing we talk about uh, because lots of articles recently talking about how cities are prepping for a recession, which I mean, makes sense. Cause I think if unemployment mm-hmm. weren't at three and a half percent, we would all generally agree after having two consecutive yeah. quarters of GDP decline that we're in a recession. Um, and we'll post those. These, we'll post these articles in the show notes. There's a city lab article. I think there's one other one. Yeah, there's that's one fortune well. too. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it seems, it seems like that's pretty much the bulwark that's keeping the general consensus from agreeing that we're, we're in recession, but certainly people are expecting us over the next what eight to 12 months to officially be in a recession that the Bureau of Economic Research actually uh, admits to. So uh, lots of articles about cities that are prepping. Now, let's not get into it now because we've already gone long. No, let's, I, I, let's plan it for... How long, how long are we in right now? It's got to be over an hour, depending on how much I cut. Can we just talk about this now and then cut it into a future podcast? Yeah, yeah we'll, okay. we'll, we'll just run long. It's all good. Okay. So a, a couple of things on the economic topic. There are those couple of articles, the Fortune, the, the City Lab article that will be in the show notes. Um that are talking about cities that are preparing for downturn. Um, and, and I, I, you know, I do generally, I, I posted on my LinkedIn a little bit about shipping volumes and things like that, that we're following. This was about 30 days ago and basically posted on my LinkedIn. Uh, and you're more of a Twitter guy. I'm more of a LinkedIn guy when it comes to talking about city stuff, but um, that I, I believe that sales tax will start reflecting a downturn in about 60 to 90 days, right? Because, you know, basically like trash tonnage and shipping volumes were there. I don't know if it's going to, I don't know if it's going to dip below inflation, which would be negative, right? Quote unquote. Negative negative. real. Yeah. Yeah. Negative real. So, but I I do think it's going to flatten out significantly. So a lot of cities that are seeing 14% increases, 15% increases, I think it's going to come a lot closer to the eight or 9% of inflationary cost. Um, and, and I, the reason I'm saying that the reason I'm making that prediction, it's not because I licked my finger and stuck it in the air. It's because 
as these public companies have started releasing data, specifically the UPSs, the FedExes, uh, the shipping companies, Amazon, uh, those folks that are on the public market, if if you look at at their um, their earnings statements and their releases, they're talking about a slowdown in consumer uh, spending, and then specifically talking about a slowdown in the amount of parcels that they're delivering. Right. So if there are less parcels, logically you would think there are less. There's less revenue. Right. From a sales tax perspective for cities. That's my general thought. I've had a few conversations with trash companies who've told me that they feel like their tonnage is down. The overall tonnage of trash is down. Uh, thank you, Robert Hanna, Abilene, Texas, uh, for teaching me about trash tonnage and a way to predict there. That was always your idea. So I give you credit for it. But the reality is, I think in 60 to 90 days, we're going to see some flattening out of sales taxes. And if cities were projecting large increases this year, they're going to be, you know, they're going to be in a, in a, a wild spot. What surprised me about these articles is these cities are projecting that they're going to have significant financial downturns in spending as if we're going to hit a hard recession, mm-hmm. right? And in Texas, I don't see, I don't really see a hard recession ahead. I mean, I know that's a blanket statement, but it just doesn't seem like well, consumer demand is going to slow down that much because there's so much, there's so many people coming to the state. Yeah. I also suspect that outside of a handful of small cities who like know of a large new sales tax payer that's going to open up next year, I mean, I would be interested to see the numbers, but I would guess that most cities didn't budget for a 10, 15% sales tax growth. I've seen some interesting projections on sales tax because they are projecting at least, you know, the, the CPI increases, right? Mm-hmm. So so I've like I would not have projected nine percent no. this year. No. Yeah, I mean, it, I just I wouldn't have. I don't it, unless I knew exactly where that nine percent was coming from from new money, right? But on the organic growth side, I would have never projected nine percent in this year. No. Uh, because I, you know, if you read what is coming out of uh, the CEOs and the private sector and so forth and so on, I mean, they're actually at the point now where they're they're telling the Federal Reserve to stop raising interest rates. Right. Like you've got a lot of CEOs that have come out and said, you know, it's um, elastic band is starting to like whip. Yeah. And it's whipping faster than the Fed can see it. Can see. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Elon Musk actually made a statement last week. I thought it was a very interesting perspective on how the Fed operates. He said, it's the time, it's time for the Fed to stop looking out the rear view window and start looking out the windshield. Right. Start looking forward, not looking backward. Uh, and because if they were looking out the windshield, then they would see that what they've already done has significantly slowed the economy. And it really is not going to have any, it's, it's not necessarily the consumer demand that is driving the pricing. It, 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 don't get me wrong. There was consumer demand that was driving pricing, especially in like the travel industry, certain areas because of the change in, in people's lifestyle. Right. If you're a remote worker, you take a vacation at any time of the year. You just, you just do. You just go. Um, if you're, you know, if you if you're not tied to an office anymore, you don't have to wait for Thanksgiving holidays to go to Disney. Right. You don't have to wait till summer to go to Disney, so forth and so on. And even school districts have adopted that. A lot of school districts in Texas, we just had one. I don't know if you guys have, but we have a fall break on top of a Thanksgiving break now. Mm-hmm. Right. We we jokingly call it the Disney break. It's six days. It was last week. It's six days long, where it's basically like the school district just randomly has these holidays so that you can go take a Disney vacation when it's not at peak time. 
but yeah. at the right time of year. We've right? got uh, Monday and Tuesday off next week for like uh, co- coinciding with Halloween. Yeah. So a nice little four day weekend there. Yeah. And, and a lot of that was driven by policy at the legislature. They allowed schools to extend their school day by like 15 minutes a day, which gives them the ability to have more holidays, but <laughs> so stupid, you know, but whatever. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just is what it is. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so the, the productivity loss in that is probably, I'm going to work an extra minute every day. And by yeah. the end of the year, I'll have six hours off. I'll take a full day and I will have yeah. gotten the equivalent amount of, uh, of work done. Yeah. I, like you don't need to have that with that conversation with me, man. I'm on the same page with you, but um, so, but my my economic statement here is is that we are we have a disconnect in our country from policy and reality. I think, um, you know, we have a disconnect between banking and Fed policy and Main Street. And what's actually occurring? Well, we also have a disconnect between uh, Fed policy, between monetary and fiscal policy. Mm -hmm. So you have the Fed trying to slow everything down, and you have the other half, the part of the actual federal government that doesn't have to abide by that. Right? They can spend extra money if they want to. They can do other things that could basically kind of counteract what the Fed's trying to do, and so. That's well, they certainly... continue to put they continue to put liquidity into the market, right? Through the monetary policy side, they continue to put liquidity out there, and the Fed is trying to slow inflation. But at the same time, when people have more and cheaper money, they continue to buy. It, it's yeah. You mean the fiscal policy side? Yeah, I sorry, think. the fiscal policy yeah. side. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think I think it's a really interesting time economically. Um, I think people are feeling that. That slowdown, that pullback, that pain. I mean, why don't we just say we're in a recession? Can you, I mean, we are in a technical recession. So we're in a recession insofar as typically when GDP has two consecutive quarters of negative growth, it's coinciding with other measures like high unemployment. Mm-hmm. Unemployment's low, labor force participation is also low. We have Terrible. a lot of, we have a lot of NILFs. Uh, people yeah. who are not in the labor force. Yeah, and between the ages of 25 and 50, 11% of the male workforce does not is not included in the labor pool. Yeah. They don't work. They're not included as unemployed. They're just 11% of the labor force, male age, 25 to 50, that are just not there. Yeah. For every one person, for every one male of that cohort who is counted as unemployed, there are three who are just not in the labor force. Wild. So, so I think that, that, is playing a part of it. And that's, again, that's kind mm-hmm. of a hidden problem. <laughs> Unless you're looking at both metrics, you don't really see, you just see low, low unemployment. So. Well, I had, so I had this conversation uh, last week and uh, I met with a, a federal rep. Uh, we had a kind of a business roundtable where business leaders from across the state came in and, and met uh, with the federal rep. And we specifically had a conversation about this. You had sent me a podcast specifically on NILFs, mm-hmm. as they're called, right? Uh, not in the labor force is what it stands for. Yeah. Get your head out, um, of, the, out of the dirt. Yeah. So you sent me this. I listened to it. I think I called you like right after I got off of there because I was shocked by the numbers. What I said, so so the question was asked to me, you know, what do we, so what's the solution to that? And I said, you know, from a data standpoint, 
I said, look, this, this is not like an educated statement, but I will tell you the biggest issue is we don't know where that 11% is, right? We have no idea where they are because the BLS is still collecting data like it was the 1950s. And so that 11%, are they out there just cash employed, not paying taxes, avoidance? Like what, what's occurring out there with that 11%? Like why don't we specifically know? Why isn't that data connected to census data? Right? Like why can't we track where it is? Because their comment was, well, you know, we had some really you know, good reforms um, you know, in like the Bush and Clinton administrations where we did a lot of welfare reform and unemployment reform and so forth and so on, they don't really know the solution to it because they don't know the problem. And my issue is, is okay, you, you, you know that there's 11% out of the workforce, but you don't know why. So go find the why. You've got to reformulate what the BLS is collecting and go figure out why this 11% is out there so that you can legislate they either become part of the workforce. Because I mean, look, do we really think that three people are sitting on the couch for every one unemployed person not wanting a job? We do know that disability uh, payments are a, a, they're not necessarily a, a problem. I don't mean to say it that way, but we do know that there are parts of the country where disability is is being abused. Right. And so people that, gravitate towards those states yeah. because of it. Like, you know, in the, Texas is in not our an easy southeast place to country, get. a southeast southeastern uh, conference states. <laughs> yeah, some of those southeastern conferences. But te- like Texas is not an easy state to get disability in. Right. They have it's pretty stringent. So you, you don't have a high percentage of it in Texas, but in some of the other states that you mentioned, and then in a lot of the northeastern states as well, uh, like the old Rust Belt states specifically. Um, you know, you you do you have a high amount of disability payments that yeah. that are coming out, so that, that could be part of it. But but, but I don't think don't that, know. Yeah, I don't think that that is would cover the full gap. So yeah, there's got to be maybe some underground or just I mean, who knows? I I don't know how you would function without some kind of employment, even if it's not legitimate. Um, as as far as like I'm getting a paycheck and I'm you know paying taxes on it. So there's got to be something going on, but I, I'm not equipped to answer the question of what is going on. So I met, or I, I met an umpire yesterday. My kids play baseball. We've talked about this in the past. Uh, we were at a tournament, a Sunday only tournament yesterday because it's football season in Alito, Texas. Um, and I'm talking to this umpire, and I'm asking him the question like, "What does he do?" And he says, "Oh, I'm an umpire." I'm like, oh, okay. So he works just weekends. Right. For cash. For cash. Mm -hmm. He makes on average $450 a day. Yeah. He works almost every weekend. So he works multiple sports, right? It's about eight games. About eight games, but he only works two days a week. Mm -hmm. Right. Full cash. I did the math. He makes $45,000 a year off the books. Yeah. Right. Working two days a week. If you think about that, if you to get forty five thousand dollars of after tax income, you have to have a much higher salary than forty five thousand yeah. dollars. Um, yeah, when I was in college, I knew uh, I, I used to umpire, and I know there were places where you could 
you could get cash and we were, you could make 30, 35 bucks a game. Well, now it's like 70 a game, 65 to 70 a game. Wow. Yeah. Inflation. And it's in, <laughs> um, and, and there are some, tar- like if you go out further west of town, you know, there are some tournaments that are like $50 pay at plate. Mm-hmm. So when you're playing for like a major organization that doesn't want to deal with tax consequences of those payments, right? They do what's called pay at the plate. Yeah. And so each coach brings 50 or 60 bucks to each umpire. There's usually two umpires and they make that 60 bucks cash right then and there at the game. Right. And so they're working uh, usually 11 games a day. That's a, that's a lot of baseball. 660 bucks. Right. They're hour and 10 games. So, I mean, man, it's just, but I, I just, I'm making that statement that the BLS has no idea that they're yeah. there. Right. They're not, they're not connected. They know they're an American. They know they live in a certain zip code. They know what they're, what they say on their attack on their census data forms, but we don't, we don't connect, you know, what's there. And, and I'm not, I'm not saying that their profession is wrong or what they're, you know, being an umpire is, a, is, is the, I think it's a, it's, it's great, but we don't consider that a profession. Being a little league umpire. No, no. I mean, and, and, and that's because it doesn't meet our 1950s, definition of a profession we don't consider an uber driver to be employed right right so a lot of the side hustle um what what is it what is the they call it something the economy the Um, gig economy the gig economy a lot of the gig economy they're considered unemployed so of that 11 percent of males you could have a bunch of like programmers right that are just gig programmers that are considered unemployed and so it's just I feel like if we could go figure that out, then we could fix some of our policies and and and, and ability to track that uh, a little better than what we do. So, and the umpires are going to make more money because they're going to have to pay taxes. So instead of being sixty bucks a game, they're going to be seventy five bucks a game, right? So that they could pay their federal tax bill. They make that much in just regular league players at just tournaments. So in league play, we pay fifty. We pay forty to the thirteen-year-olds that work our games, right? So it's good yeah. money when you're young. It's oh, hard money when you're older. <laughs> you're outside for <laughs> ten games and it's hundred degrees and you have all that gear on. It's rough. Oh well, yeah. I mean, you know, usually they're only behind the plate for like you know half of the day, right? And they're switching. Yeah, they'll do two um, on, two off if it's a long day. Yeah, but like, you know, we we've got this guy Kelly who's our football referee. Right. He's also our basketball referee. And we occasionally see him show up at baseball fields. And then he also does soccer. Like a lot of these, that's that's their career. That's what they do. And then in Texas, if they're part of Tasso and they work their way up there, then it's like a full blown career where they work high school games. Yeah. Right. I think once you get to that and point, then, if, then it probably is considered an actual career. But Little League is a bit ad hoc. It probably would not be considered a profession. Yeah, but if I didn't do this, man, I'd be a, I'd be, I'd do baseball all day. I could sit out the baseball field and watch baseball all day. So it's only really bad when you you know you're playing nine U baseball and your catcher can't catch the ball. That's that's when it's yeah. tough to be an umpire. Yeah, that's <laughs> so, also when the strike zone starts to get a bit wide. Shout, shout out to the consistent. umpire. Yeah, so we we walked into a game. It was a ten U game. Um, the um, it, my son's a catcher, uh, and he can catch the ball quite well. But the umpire asked me before we got started, he goes, man, I just, that last team, the catcher couldn't catch anything. And he goes, I, I just got beat up. 
and guy was from Paris, Texas, by the way. And uh, I said, oh, you'll be okay this game. He didn't get hit one time. And he goes, man, I was calling strikes just because he was catching the ball. <laughs> I was <laughs> like, all right, thanks, man. The thing is, you had, to, you had to position your body so that your shin guards and your chest protector are actually doing the job. You can't leave your thighs open, uh, which maybe I was able to do better because I'm as about the, the height of an average 10 year old. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now they have like, the, careful. they have like the body suits that are made out of like football pads. Right. So oh, wow. A really, really light. They're not near as heavy as they used to be. Right. It's not like the big suit that you used to have to put. Yeah. On we didn't, we, we still had pretty lightweight, but they had shoulder, uh, shoulder pads. And then the chest gear thing that kind of came down to a point for added yeah. protection. <laughs> yeah. Yes, man. The um, the worst was yeah. getting a hit off the face because when you get like you take a foul ball because the kids are not going to catch uh, a foul tip. Mm-hmm. So when you take a foul tip off the face mask, that's that's probably the worst thing that's going to happen to you. Assuming that you're fully protected, if you know what I mean, it's probably the worst thing that'll happen to you as a little league umpire. Yeah, yeah. So we did. We had one that got a concussion once. Uh, did he get hit in the head with a bat? He got hit in the head with a ball. The ricochet of the ball gave him a concussion. Yeah. Wow. So um, it was a, you know, it was a 10 tournament, but kid just swung hard. Ball came off bad hard. Just, you know, physics wasn't, wasn't too friendly to him. And he wasn't wearing a, they make like a face mask. That's just like a standard catcher's mask. Right. Mm-hmm. And then they make one. that's like a shock absorber mask. And he didn't have that like shock absorber mask on. He, cause it was, you know, younger kids. He didn't think he needed it. And yeah, I paid for the super upgraded padding. It was, it was very nice. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's nicer padding and now they have like the one it's got like, it's got like a, like air springs in it. It actually Hmm. like absorbs the hit of the ball. So it's gotten real fancy there, Chad, since you've done it, maybe you should get back into that. Yeah. It's probably been 15 years. Of course I have, I hear kids now. I hear the youth baseball parents. Yeah. I hear the youth baseball parents in today's world are just much easier to deal with. Oh, I'm sure they are. <laughs> if the youth <laughs> soccer parents are any indication, uh, I'm yeah. sure that they are. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I, I think that's it, man. I think we've wrapped everything up for today. How are you right. feeling? Feel good. We went long. Right. It's going to be fun editing. It, it should. It should. It may end up being two podcasts. Maybe we'll see. So anyways, well, we appreciate you guys tuning into us uh, and listening to us as usual. Uh, our information And the stuff that we talked about will be in the show notes. So if you want to go listen to those podcasts or check out some of those articles, feel free. Until next time, Chad, we'll see you. See you, bud.